I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Euh, dites donc, Nadège, comment aviez-vous recruté le nouveau si rapidement la dernière fois Bah, LinkedIn. Ah bon, parce que là, j'ai besoin de toute urgence d'un ingénieur en IA. Alors, où est-ce qu'on peut le trouver Bah, LinkedIn. J'ai pas le temps de voir mille candidats, moi. Comment on va faire Bah, LinkedIn. Bah, 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 bah. Vu l'urgence, vous êtes vraiment confiante, Nadège bah, oui. Avec 8 personnes recrutées par minute sur LinkedIn pour tous vos recrutements, il y a, bah, LinkedIn. Pour en savoir plus, rendez-vous sur linkedin.com slash je recrute. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, sweetie. Well, I, 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 need to, um, I need to address an issue with you. I feel that your behaviour has been a little Theresa May-ish in as much as you, you call this, it's not a snap election, but basically last week yes. you say, everybody, we're, we're starting this big campaign, yeah. we're going to get our listeners to vote in the British Podcast Awards. I advised against it, but but you were very determined, and I think you've launched a very lacklustre campaign. You haven't really done anything since. You've, but it's because, you've been look, invisible. Oh, look, basically we went on that walking holiday together. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, we smelt the country air. And you know, you just—it sort of inspired me, really. Yeah, but uh, and then we ran through the field of wheat. Yes. Yeah, so, are we, are we, are we going to see some more campaigning? You want me from to do you? some tweeting? I, th- I think so. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, I sort of, you know, I sort of think it's a long campaign. How long is it? I think we've got a couple more weeks okay. of the campaign okay. to go. So people, we it's need a to British podcast awards. Yeah. Uh, people need to vote. It's a listener's choice awards. They- yeah, actually, you can go to britishpodcastawards.com stroke vote. And I had an idea. What if we incentivized our listeners to vote by saying, if you do that and do a screenshot of your vote being submitted and then email it to us, um, at the end of the voting period, we'll put all the people who've done so in a hat and then we'll invite somebody to come along to the podcast recording and have uh, tea and biscuits with us one day. Well, normally, this, there's strict laws against treating the voters, but I think that is for a general election or other elections. I don't, so I think, I don't think the British don't think they Awards are governed by fair the Electoral enough. Commission. Fair, fair enough. So yeah. I think, yes, I think that's a good idea. You're not worried. I'm now worried that we're going to be disqualified. I don't to, think so. Yeah. So, so there you go. If you if you vote for us, BritishPodcastAwards.com stroke vote. Do a screen grab of your vote being submitted. We'll put them all in the hat, and then we'll show you a right we'll royal put, time. We'll, we'll, here. The one that gets sent in in the hat. <laughs> um, I mean, this is this is a way of testing their commitment, really. Isn't exactly. It? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but we'll we'll invite you here. We'll give you a great afternoon. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. We get the point. <laughs> Uh, this week we're talking about the divorce laws. Um, I, I have never been through a divorce, neither of you. I'm trying to think of anything I've got pertinent to the topic. Um, I was thinking about my wedding day. Did I ever tell you that I caught herpes from my mother-in-law on my wedding day? 
Did you? Did that really happen then? Yeah, yeah. She. Uh, I mean, it was in the form of a cold sore. So on my wedding day, she went to give me a big kiss to say congratulations. And then a day later, we were landing. Uh, the plane was coming into land for the honeymoon. I could feel a tingling. And I had such an extreme cold sore on my top lip throughout my honeymoon that my, my lips were out of action, Ed. And, and yet still my wife didn't divorce me. Right. I mean, she could have had okay. it in old, I don't, maybe. I don't have a... Um... So I don't have a sort of equivalent story. I mean, my wedding had probably more press than your wedding did. Mm. Um, we had to walk down an incredibly windy driveway with us getting blown around to sort of talk to the world's, not the world's press, but the British press. It was a kind of, I wouldn't recommend it in general. Okay. I'll, you know I'll I mean? in mind for my I mean, I'd marriage. recommend the wedding, but not the, not the press aspect of it. Yeah. So, so what can you can you explain what we're talking about this week? Basically, the problem in England and Wales is that if you want to get divorced, you either got to show that your part your spouse has been uh, committed adultery or so called unreasonable behaviour, or you have to wait two years through mutual consent or five years if you don't have mutual consent. And basically, there's no no fault divorce. And the problem is this this might sound like why are we doing this subject, but actually the more I've thought about it, the more I've heard about it, it's totally bizarre because um it it doesn't stop people divorcing, it just makes divorces more acrimonious than they would otherwise be. You've got to blame each other, you've got to introduce blame. There was even a law introduced to have no fault divorce, but it was never enacted. So it's a big mess. And actually, there are some areas where you just listen to the arguments. Do you think this is a no brainer? We should really change it. So I think this is one of those areas. And in addition to that, we have a fantastic comedian coming on to pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. She's really funny. Catherine Bohart. What's your reason? Well, my reason to be cheerful is to do with you. So it was my birthday last week, as we mentioned on the previous podcast, and I came home on the evening of my birthday to find a wonderful package from Ed. He, uh, you said um, you, com- you com- it's a way for me to combine my love of the Muppets with my love of you, and Ed bought me some Muppet figurines, which included Dr. Bunsen Honeydew and Beaker. I know, and I don't look like either of them, do I? You, you're not traumatized. I, mean, I don't have. I don't have orange hair. You're not traumatized just by the sight of Beaker. No, I mean you can see why there is a sort of faint resemblance, can't you? <laughs> well, I think um, we've mentioned before that one of our listeners often reenacts scenes from the podcast in Lego and puts them on Twitter. I think I might do the same with uh, Doctor Bunsen Honeydew and, and maybe Beaker. we should take them out of the package. And I'll you, do that, yeah. I can hold Beaker, and you can hold Bunsen. <laughs> um. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, mine is widely covered the statue of Millicent Fawcett. So it's both statues, really. Mine's a statue of Beaker. Exactly. And and mine is a statue of Millicent Fawcett. It's unbelievable that there are, I believe, eight statues already in Parliament Square, none of them of women. So finally, there's a statue of a woman in Parliament Square. But I think, I think one is like. Uh, you know, better than none, but we need to, you know, go Who, further. Who do you want next? Well, I'm sure there are lots and lots of people. It could be. Uh, what about Barbara Castle? Oh, Equal Pay Act. Yeah. You know, but for on pensions, sort of incredible. You know, or, or actually, or you could have a more um, a sort of less famous person, one of the um, or group of the Dagenham workers. You know. Yeah, although it gets a bit like, did you, did you ever used to watch This Is Your Life? Yeah. It was always so disappointing when it was somebody who wasn't famous, you know, like sort of a milkman who did a lot of good deeds or things. Oh, come on, Jeff. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Aisha Vardags, who's one of Britain's top divorce lawyers and launched family law reform to campaign to change Britain's divorce law. Aisha, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So, look, first of all, can you tell us why you, as one of Britain's most prominent divorce lawyers, is campaigning to change our laws? The situation in England at the moment is that we don't have what uh, everyone knows from films in America as divorce for irreconcilable differences. Unhappy couples have to petition the court showing that they've committed some form of fault in order to get a divorce. The problem with that is that, uh, well, first of all, it's against the fundamental idea 
of the freedom to enter into or to exit relationships. So you have the case of Mrs. Owens, who's an elderly lady who's desperate to leave her marriage, but hasn't thrown sufficient mud at her husband for the court to determine that she's entitled to get out. So she's trapped there and will be trapped there for five years of separation unless she uh, wins her appeal that's um, coming through the Supreme Court shortly. That, to me, is a, 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 an unacceptable restriction on individual freedoms and autonomy. The second, uh, the second problem is that uh, having this situation leads to a lot of unnecessary acrimony in, in couples who are having difficulties. Um, you'll have a couple who might come and they're, they're really sad and regretful about the end of their marriage, but they uh, they don't bear any real real ill will towards their partner. But then we force them as lawyers, because we have to, to sit down and compose a list of insulting and offensive things about their spouse, whom they've loved, who they may have had children with, and that's what they have to put through the court. The other side gets this, and of course they feel immense hostility. This leads to all kinds of bad will to do with the divorce, and it also massively reduces the prospect of any sort of reconciliation, which can take place even after a divorce petition, but is much less likely to if you've been faced with a load of insults in a, in a petition. The, uh, the third thing is that uh, there's a lot of domestic abuse, much more than there should. And one of the most vulnerable points for domestic abuse, for the victims who are statistically more women, is upon the... Um, husband receiving a petition, when they receive a petition that's offensive in the way that a divorce petition is is structurally required to be, that makes the vulnerability even greater. Child welfare is reduced by having this bad will between the parents. It's very hard for them to go through the process in which often they have to keep living together, of uh, continuing to parent the children through the divorce and then after the divorce. For us, a good outcome is when both parents carry on co-parenting in a friendly, cooperative, child-focused way. If they're hating each other or feeling resentful, that doesn't work at all. And then um, the last thing is, of course, it, it generates a huge amount of extra cost. When you, you've got the cost of the petition going through the court, you've got the court time doing it. If people can't stomach what's in the petition, then they will defend the divorce. That's a whole load more cost. Court time and cost for the court, time and cost for the individuals. If we have no-fault divorce, then uh, it's an administrative process. People don't, don't get divorced lightly. Having to list insulting things about their partners doesn't make them more likely to stay together. It just makes the process of a sad and sometimes inevitable ending all the worse and makes it much harder to reconcile or to co-parent. Well, look, that's a very comprehensive set of uh, reasons why the current uh, system is a major problem. Um, tell us, what do you think is the reason why this change hasn't been made? Historically, anytime anyone put forward the suggestion of reform of matrimonial law in any way that made divorce less difficult, less of an obstacle, um, there was very little political will for this because the other side could always jump up and down and say, look, you're the party that's against marriage, that's for quickie divorces, that's going to break down the fabric of our society as we know it. I think we have for the first time an opportunity for broad, wide, uh, broad uh, consensus across the board on this, that this is a good thing, this is a family-focused thing. And what else would you do to the current laws on marriage and divorce? Because there are still some uh, sort of anomalies, aren't there? For example, there are no civil partnerships for heterosexual couples, but there are for uh, gay couples, and there are other problems in the system too. Yeah, I think the civil partnership thing is a bit of a sort of legacy of a, of a law that was a little bit of a half measure in the first place. I think initially uh, there wasn't... The, the the drive and the, the sufficient sort of force behind the movement for gay marriage to get it all the way to gay marriage. So civil partnership was a compromise that was put in for same-sex couples. Um, then you end up with this odd anomaly where you've got both civil partnership and marriage for same-sex couples, but only marriage for for um, heterosexual couples. And that that seems unfair. I mean, I think there are two ways to go on this. Either you either 
Prescient civil partnership for heterosexual couples, and then you're all equal across the board, it doesn't really add much to anyone over registry office marriage, which is non-religious, civil. The only difference is uh, there's no breakdown of marriage on the basis of adultery. But on the other hand, you know, there is for behavior, so adultery can be behavior. Um, so it doesn't really add anything at all. There are all the same restrictions on breakdown of the partnership, all the same financial rights. It's not really different, but it would at least equalize the position. The other thing to do is just to say, okay, civil partnership was a halfway house. We're all the way there now. We're just going to have marriage for same-sex couples and for heterosexual couples. Anyone who's got a civil partnership is entitled to deem that a marriage now if they wish or not if they don't, but at least we get it all lined up and we, we, we have an honest position on this and we get where we were really meaning to go with this legislation. Aisha Vadag, thanks so much for joining us and for setting out why this current system needs to change. My great pleasure. So on the line, we have Nigel Shepherd, who is former chairman of Resolution, which is an organisation of family lawyers who've campaigned on this issue for years. Nigel, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. And it's a timely uh, discussion that we're having this week because there's a case going before the Supreme Court next month, which Resolution have been given permission to intervene in. Uh, can you tell us about the case and also why it's such a good example of why the laws need to change? Yeah, I mean, it's the case of Mr. and Mrs. Owens. Um, the, uh, the, the wife is Teeny Owens and the husband, Hugh Owens. Basically, Mrs. Owens issued a divorce petition um, alleging that Mr. had behaved in a way that meant she could no longer reasonably be expected to live with him anymore, um, which is the, the legal test under the current law. Um, unusually, because this is rare, he defended it. He said, no, I haven't, um, and I'm not going to grant you a divorce. Um, the first judge that dealt with it agreed. Um, Mrs. Owens went to the Court of Appeal, who uh, felt they had no alternative but to uphold the initial judge's decision. And she's then appealed to our highest court, which is the Supreme Court. And that is due to be heard on the 17th of May. Is there a feeling within the legal profession and within the courts that the, these laws are kind of a ridiculous thing to have to live by? Absolutely. Um, I mean, personally and professionally, I've been campaigning for this for over two decades. Um, the current uh, situation is that you have to show that the marriage has broken down irretrievably, uh, but it's not enough just to say that. You have to demonstrate that by proving one, um, if you like, or more subgrounds. Um, two of those are fault-based, adultery and shorthand behaviour. Um, and the majority of petitions are on one of those two bases, not because people necessarily want to blame each other, but because uh, otherwise you have to wait at least two years um, with consent for a divorce or five years without consent. Um, and that's the situation in which Mrs. Owens finds herself, um, that without the consent and the divorce being blocked, she is going to have to wait five years from her separation in 2015. So this blame game... Um, means that people are pushed into acrimony. Um, it militates against people trying to find solutions. Um, and Parliament actually did decide in the mid-90s that it should change and that we should have no-fault divorce. But that was never implemented and that was finally repealed. So we're back with the law from 1969. High time for change time to end the blame game, if you like. So we're going to talk to Chris from Relate uh, shortly about how it impacts on families and relationships. But can you tell us about how, how it is a burden on the court system? Because it must clog things up. Well, it certainly clogs things up um, in the rare cases that are defended and go to a, a full trial, which is literally evidence, as you would have in almost in a criminal trial, about you know who is to blame and the impact of that um, on the petitioner. Um, but it, it, the whole point is that it, it means that people, instead of focusing on the future, particularly where there are children, and I know Chris will feel very strongly about that, as we all do, um, it encourages people to have to blame each other just to get a divorce, um, rather than focusing on children arrangements and what they're going to do about their financial future. So it's backward looking, not forward looking. Um, and even... I've been doing this job for 35 years. People come to me and say, look, um, we agree the marriage is over. We both want a divorce. We want it to be amicable, but we need to get on with it because we need to sort out the finances. And I say, very sorry, but you can't do that unless you're able to wait two years 
one of you is going to have to blame the other. And people are appalled mad. when they do that. I mean, that is just absolutely mad. Bonkers, yeah. How high is the bar? In other words, um, what do you have to show? Because presumably the point in this Owens case is that the first judge said that the behaviour wasn't unreasonable enough. Yeah, I mean, the bar, the bar if it's not defended, is remarkably low. Um, in reality. Um, and resolutions uh, ethos, uh, our code of practice, is to try and encourage people to reduce animosity and acrimony and be constructive. So if both sides of the marriage have got solicitors who are resolution members, we will say to them, look, this is a means to an end. Um, it, it has to be a behaviour petition. There's been no adultery, for example. So let's make these, these, these allegations as mild as we can, strong enough just to get through a pretty low bar um, but not so strong that it's going to upset um, either of you and throw you off course when you're trying to settle. The problem is that if it's defended, the bar is a lot higher. And that's what this case has shown. And there is certainly some evidence that since Owens, um, practitioners have started to say to clients, look, you know, we, we need to make it a bit stronger um, for fear that it's going to be knocked back by the courts, even when undefended. But the problem is so many people nowadays um, are not actually legally represented. Um, huge cuts to legal aid a number of years ago have, have meant that the majority of people are doing this without help, without any guidance at all. And they're not let into the secret about how low the bar is. So they probably think they have to make a whole load of allegations, pages of the stuff, or if they're facing them, they feel they have to defend it because it's going to make a difference to money or children, which it doesn't. So it's a double whammy. And is there a chance that Owens itself will lead the law to change or is that just going to have to be up to Parliament to finally do it? What Owens is about is whether or not the current law, with all its faults, can be interpreted in a way that allows Mrs Owens to get her divorce on the same facts because the, 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 the appeal courts can't interfere with the, the decision of the original judge on facts because... He's heard Mr. and Mrs. Owens in the witness box. So it really is a question about whether the test should be shifted more um, almost exclusively on the impact of the behaviour upon Mrs. Owens, rather than any objective assessment, um, if you like, of, of, of the great public as to whether the behaviour in itself is, is bad enough. Um, so it's a, a, a subtle but significant shift if Mrs. Owens wins that argument there's also a human rights angle. Um, but come what may, whether she wins or loses, um, the fact that she's had to go all the way to our highest court in order to get a divorce if she wins or is still blocked after all that if she loses just shows how strongly um, the campaign for reform um, is and why it's needed. Nigel, thanks so much for joining us and for setting out the, the case so clearly. It's a pleasure. So listening to all that is Chris Sherwood, CEO of Relate, the UK's largest provider of relationship support. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Nice to see you, Ed and Jeff. Um, the law's an ass. Discuss. Well, I mean, certainly we've heard from Aisha and from Nigel some of the challenges. I mean, you know, if we look at what's happening in the England and Wales legal system, the fact that we have a fault-based divorce system, you know, we see the challenges that has in the counselling room on couples who are, you know, having to invent these reasons about why they want to go for a divorce or separation. And I think the point that Nigel made about that the law is retrospective rather than forward-looking. I mean, you know, if a couple have children and they're going through divorce, then actually they're, they're in intimate couple relationship is coming to an end but their relationship as co-parents is going to continue with those children and putting them on a good footing for that is is incredibly important and I think you know what what I find frustrating about the argument about why we need a fault-based divorce system is that we can't do anything to make divorce easier but actually I find that really difficult to hear because actually no one approaches divorce um, as an easy thing to do or lightly you know we see the pain and the, the heartache that people bring into the counseling room when they're experiencing relationship difficulties it's not something that people approach lightly um, so I think you know that the kind of fault-based divorce system reinforces conflict at a time which is actually quite a difficult time for people anyway and particularly for my concern is about the impact that has on children as they see their parents having to invent reasons and you know, I, you know I've been through a civil partnership dissolution myself and you know we were a you know, two gay men who were, you know, coming to the end of a relationship. We knew we wanted to break up and we had to sit in a pub in South London and invent a bunch of reasons why my ex-civil partner was was separating from me and wanted to have a civil partnership dissolution. I mean, you know, the, the law is an ass in that example. And, and 
what impact does it have on couples that you see it relate that that they could, they can't just divorce if they both want to they've got to find unreasonable behavior or adultery what 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 sort of material impact does it have well i mean we we do see that you know in certainly in england and wales you know more than half of divorce petitions are fault based which you know compared to jurisdictions like scotland that's incredibly high so either we're having lots and lots of unreasonable behavior and adultery in england and wales compared to uh, you know jurisdiction like scotland or what we do see through surveys and resolution survey finds that a quarter of couples are actually you know trying to embellish or should i say make up their reasons for going for a divorce or for their divorce and just to be clear about this the 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 less than half that are not fault based that's after two years if both parties consent so you've got to wait two years basically wait two years but actually a two-year period sounds like you know oh well you can wait two years but what about if you've got to divide financial assets what about custody battles in terms of children you know you know uh, separating your life from another person can be complex and particularly in you know in london where you know the cost of housing and trying to buy people out of their property can be more difficult as well and i think one of the things that came out of this for me was you know what is the role of the state here you know, you know, the state here in terms of, you know, expressing a view around, you know, what whether making divorce easier or not. I mean, it's a really interesting question around this. And particularly for a, for a couple who have no children, who've got married and want to move on, you know, should we making that even harder than it than it needs to be? So I think there's a kind of question about that. And I think this has become much more of an issue, as Nigel talks about in his interview, since the changes to legal aid. I mean, we saw a huge removal of public funding back in 2011 under the legal aid bill. And that removes a lot of funding for people to to get support for their divorce. And what we've seen is a significant rise in the number of litigants in person in the family cause, or where only one party is represented. And, and that's been a real challenge, because again, the public's perception is they need to have these really good reasons. You know, one of the biggest innovations we've seen in divorce law in the past 20 years is people now Google to find other people's reasons when they're putting their petition through to the family court about why they want to divorce their partner. And they just cut and paste them. Yeah, I mean, people are cutting and pasting. I mean, it's just mad, isn't it? I mean, the whole thing is just, it just makes the whole thing ridiculous. There's probably money to be made in having a website where people can go and just cut and paste. You, know, you could just make up the 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 bare minimum reasons. I don't think it's quite for us. No, no. <laughs> I'm not saying it's ethical. I, I go back to this figure. Resolution found 27% of divorcing couples were asserting blame in their divorce petition, but admitted the allegation of fault wasn't true, but it was the easiest option to get divorced. And we, and we have, if you like, a, a, a natural point of reference now for this, which is Scotland, where they changed the law in 2006, where they do have no-fault divorce, I mean, tell us a little bit about Scotland, because it hasn't led to an increase in divorce in Scotland, has it? No, I, I think, the, the, again, this argument that it's going to lead to, to more divorce by making divorce a bit easier, I'm not sure that is right. And certainly we see that from our own services that, as I said, you know, people who approach this, it's a very difficult situation to go through. It's not just Scotland, other jurisdictions, you know, North America, Australia, parts of Europe do as well. I think there's two points I'd make about this. I mean, first of all, I did disagree a bit with Aisha about the, the thing that she was saying about civil partnerships. You know, it, you know, in some parts of continental Europe, for instance, you can register your relationship relationship if you're cohabiting after two years so you have some rights you know to get rights with your partner in terms of property in terms of pensions in terms of those assets you do have to get married here in England and Wales and there are alternatives to that because we have to remember that not everyone wants to get married on a position and some people have an ideological opposition to marriage seeing it as an outdated institution so so having alternatives there is important and the second thing is that we know family life has changed significantly since the divorce law reforms of the 1970s you know the fastest growing uh, unit with children in our country is cohabiting couples with children followed by lone parent households so family life is changing but family law isn't changing and a big part of that is moving away from a fault-based divorce system but it's also about embracing technology i mean we live in a kind of desert when it comes to technology in family law we've only just allowed skype-based family mediation in the past two years i mean we're really behind the curve and i think lady hale the head of the supreme court president of the supreme court's come out and said we need to use a lot more technology in divorce cases. I go back to my own civil partnership dissolution. That could have been done far more easily through some kind of online portal. And ju- just to be clear about this, the system you'd like is where you can divorce on the if both parties consent without fault with some kind of 
cooling off period or straight away or how does how would it work i think a cooling off period you know can be helpful in that sort of situation um richard bacon the conservative mp for norfolk south when he put his private members bill through on this topic is a 10 minute rule bill in 2015 he talked about a 12 month cooling off period i mean we can debate what the cooling off period is i think that you know that can be helpful because we also have to remember that one of the things that does come through is that some people do regret their divorce after they separated but again i think what richard bacon also talked about in his 10 minute rule bill is we need to ensure that you know services are available to support separating couples whether that's relationship counseling from organizations like relate my own organization and alternatives to going to family court through things like family mediation and online dispute resolution and what other changes do you think need to be made the, uh, to the laws which affect our relationships because there's an issue isn't there about civil partnerships for heterosexual um couples I mean, I'd like to see equality there that heterosexual couples can take up civil partnerships. You know, for me, it's almost like you have some kind of hierarchy. If you want the most rights, get married. But if you want some rights, a civil partnership can fill that opportunity. But also, as I said, the kind of, you know, European model where if you're cohabiting with somebody, you know, after a set period of two years, being able to register that relationship. So I agree with Aisha, we shouldn't just impose these, you know, uh, rights and responsibilities onto people. People have to opt into them. But there are alternatives. And again, a real big challenge in our country today is that you know the cost of weddings we have to talk about that you know the average cost of a wedding is getting on towards twenty thousand pounds and you know we live in a difficult uh, market where you know do you save your deposit or do you pay off your student debt or do you you know pay for your but wedding? also people who don't necessarily want to get married who are heterosexual couples at the moment they have no rights. Is that right? Correct. That's right. If they're in a, you know, this idea of a common law marriage isn't true. You know, the rights you may have is if you have children involved. But yes, if you if you're cohabiting with your partner and your house is in your one apartment, one of them dies or. What you split up, there's no rights. Not unless there's a, a will put in place there. There, right. there. You know, you don't get the rights that you get assumed through marriage. Um, so to, to have access to people's pension, their property, marriage gives you a vehicle to do that. But if you're not married, then no, there's, there's no such thing as common law marriage within English law. Chris, wh- why do you think it's so, it seems so obvious to me, and I think I'm looking at Jeff to, to you too, this, doesn't it? Well, it just seems to me, is, is there anybody really arguing that we should keep the current system that no somebody must is is or is it just the faff of change but yeah is it that is it the faff of changing it and the uh, you know the uh legislative time that it would take up means it doesn't happen or are there people out there who think no this is this is the best way of doing it i think there's a very spirited debate in our society about uh, marriage for some and the importance of marriage and i think that you know where where relate comes into this is that actually whether someone's married or not married isn't necessarily the thing to look at what we look at is the quality of relationships so people got a good safe stable nurturing relationship is what's critical and some people have that when they're married and some people don't have that when they're married and i think that sometimes we shorthand marriage um as a as a proxy for good quality relationships and again i go back to the role of the state here you know is it the role of the state to say this type of relationship is the best or do we accept a diversity of different relationships and we live in a liberal society family life has moved on a great deal you know does the law need to keep pace with that? I think it does. And you need to recognise, as, as Ed said, that some people make a conscious choice to cohabit. You know, we need to make sure the law works with them and for them, not against those kinds of choices that people should have the power to make. And, you know, our relationships are governed by politics. You know, the you know politicians decide, you know, how we can marry, who we can marry in, the, in respect of same-sex couples, and also how we can divorce as well. And we've got equal marriage, which is great. Let's get, let's get equal civil partnerships and let's see if we can reform divorce law as well. And just one other question. You see lots of couples who face different difficulties. What is the level of support available to couples? I don't necessarily mean couples who are necessarily going to divorce in our society. What what level of support is available to couples and what more could we do in that respect? I think there's a, a huge amount of information out there. And again, what people want is information they can trust. You know, being an older millennial, uh, you know, we, we have so much information out there. Actually, how do we know we can trust this information? Um, I think that we need to get messages about these kinds of issues back into schools. You know, seeing relationship education on the curriculum is good. You know, we need to see that these things here because people often plan for their wedding. They don't necessarily plan for their divorce. And you can find yourself in a system that is clunky and complicated 
indicator. I mean, we published a report called Breaking Up is Hard to Do, which looked at how siloed the divorce and separation market is and how difficult it is for consumers to navigate it. So I think there is kind of getting, you know, more trusted information out there. And again, I think making sure that, you know, relationship counselling and services like the, the, the services my organisation provided have proper support. You know, one of my concerns is that, you know, if you have a low-income household or you're from a vulnerable group, getting access to those services is incredibly difficult today because the amount of funding that's going into them has definitely shrunk over the past eight years um, and we see less support for those kinds of services. So we end up with this kind of, you know, if you can afford to pay, you get service, but if you can't, where do you go to? And organisations like Relate really struggle to make sure we can extend our services to everybody in our society. Okay, Chris Sherwood from Relate. Let's hope that this is going to produce some change in the law because... I'm totally convinced. Maybe a private member's bill. Well, indeed. <laughs> and in your professional opinion, how does Ed and my relationship seem to you at this? Well, I'm going to own the fact that I'm not a relationship counsellor. Uh, <laughs> and if you want to come to Relate, you can have um, counselling in friendships as individuals. And we're also the largest provider of counselling for young people in our country as well. We had this issue over me not inviting Jeff to a lunch with George Ezra. I think we might need to go. <laughs> then there was the I David think, Attenborough thing. I think we might need to go and talk to Relate about that. Communication is the key. You know, we are, we are the relationship people in we're all about communication okay thanks very much thank you you convinced yeah absolutely to to the extent that i just can't believe there's any significant number of people that would object to a bunch of, of numpties and and i also think um most people just don't know don't know about this i suppose it's only if you yourself or if you have a, a close friend or relation who's going through it that you think hang on a minute that seems like a really screwy system and it can be fixed really easily screwy is the word i mean i sort of feel like pretty ignorant that i didn't know about this i mean chris didn't sort of dwell on this but the tory government in 1996 legislated for this and we sort of passed over this and then nothing really but it legislated for it but didn't enact it. And then nothing sort of happened, presumably because the Labour government was worried about, I don't know, the Daily Mail or... You or know, maybe just finding the time to do it. But No, but, no, no, but it was already been on the legislation. I think it was just required enactment. Oh. I, I think that's what I understood. So, and then it gets repealed. But it's like, I, it was like never on my radar until somebody pointed it out to me, this whole thing. I mean, just just one other factual point on Scotland, um, because Chris mentioned that Scotland changed the law in 2006. In case you think, oh, this will lead to like a massive increase in divorces and you might or might not be worried about that. The number of divorces was 13,300 in Scotland in 1985. When the law came in in 2006, there was a, a brief blip upwards, but it has essentially kept falling to 8875 in 2015-16. And that so, blip was people hang, hanging on yeah, for the hanging legislation. Yeah, I think. So yeah. so but so you know, it's not going to lead to an increase in divorce. It'll make divorces less acrimonious when they happen. I mean, WTF, why, why don't we just do it? Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
If you've got thoughts about what you've heard on today's podcast, please email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast and also on Instagram. And you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. And last week we covered climate change. Lots of people emailing in about that, including Ashvinder Singh from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Hi, Ashvinder. Dear Ed and Jeff, he says, I listen to your podcast on the way to work, and I think it's an awesome show on serious public policy questions. I'm a big ideas policy geek, and I love listening to the different views Ed on the show from various speakers and from Ed's experience in office and Jeff's ideal aspirations for his geofocracy. In your recent show regarding climate change, one thing I'd like to ask is where do you guys stand on the issue of whether developing countries should be allowed to pollute more in order to catch up developed countries, given that the latter category have been accused of imposing unfair rules to poor countries that can't afford clean power generation? Thanks again, and please read out my email. Um, so this has obviously been a long-running debate, and it's one of the things that derailed Copenhagen. There's a concept in the climate world called Common But Differentiated Responsibilities, CBDR, which basically takes account of the fact that um, rich countries having moved forward on a certain model of kind of high-carbon economic development can't suddenly say to poor countries, well, you've got to adapt at exactly the same pace and not develop, given that you know poor developing countries are indeed you know at an earlier stage of development. So it's got to be it's got to take account of these historical facts. I would say also though that we're trying to get poorer countries to have a different form of development, which is lower carbon. And one of the ways we can help them, as well as having taking account of the history, is by helping to fund it. Uh, so I think it's that combination is the way we take account of the whole north south. Uh, divide and 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 the issues that Ashvinda rightly raises. This comes from Gareth Dean, who says, "Dear Jeff and Ed, I've just finished listening to the climate change episode, and one of the key ways mentioned in lowering your personal carbon footprint is using public transport and not driving." However. The problem with this is that it's all well and good saying this regarding major cities, but large swathes of the country have awful transport networks. Personally, I'm from an hour outside of Belfast, and the transport links in rural counties are non-existent and quite expensive when they are. Uh, you can't cut bus routes and have exorbitantly expensive railway system, but then still expect people to use public transport routes on a daily basis. I'm in Spain this year, and the rail costs are a fraction of what they are in the UK. And you know, this, I suppose, is an example of the podcast intersecting with each other, because this was something that came up in both the rail and the bus. Episodes. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point, isn't it? You can't expect people to adapt and not use their cars if the public transport's rubbish. So we've covered... Uh, uh, Malaysia, Spain, and now Toronto. Uh, Sam Bowers, hi guys, big fan of the podcast. I've been listening from Toronto since last year. Can you do an episode on food? Partly because it's something you're both clearly deeply passionate about, make your own sandwiches, but also because in many ways the food system in wealthy societies and perhaps even globally is broken. The US throws away half of all food produced, while at the same time, 800 million people in the world don't have enough. Like many things, the food supply chain has become globalised, reducing prices, but at the detriment to both the environment and our health. We eat far too much meat that is not only unhealthy, but degrades water stocks, creates massive greenhouse gas emissions, and is an inefficient use of land. Half of all grain is eaten by livestock, not people. Methane emissions from cows are increasing each year, while the Amazon rainforest is being deforested to farm soybeans to feed Chinese pigs. The mechanisation of the slaughter process creates suffering most people li literally would not be able to stomach. Oh, and young people spend more money on eating out than cooking at home. So my question is, how can responsible citizens eat an affordable, locally sourced, ecologically sustainable and healthy diet in 2018? Can consumer choices really make an impact or do we need some more fundamental top-down change? Should we begin to tax meat like cigarettes? Help! Exclamation mark, Sam. P.S. The worst part is I'm not even a vegetarian. Which you are, Sunshine. I am. Give it a go. Yeah, well, I think, I think you know, I was really struck by what Christiana Figueres said about, you know, eating less meat being one of the most important things that we can all do. But I think that Sam is probably right. You need top-down as well as bottom-up chain. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast. Or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. 
And here's pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by a very funny comedian, Catherine Bohart. Hello. 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 How are you both? We're, we're, we're well. We're well. And the weather's quite nice today. Oh, yes. And Ed is a big fan of the sunshine. Catherine and myself I'm are both quite freckly. Of, is it yeah. a big struggle for you? I mean, I like the sunshine. The sunshine just does not like me. Mm. That's all right. I have experience with that. Mm. And um, it's fine. No, I'm, as long as I stay inside and um, don't go anywhere, <laughs> it's actually fine. Yeah. So do you, do you go on holiday to hot places then? Not on purpose. Right. Um, sometimes I do for other people's benefit. I, I do actually love the sun. It's just, like I said, it's a very much a one-way street. The Arctic. Honestly, that's the place to Maybe go Maybe I should give it I've a been, try. I've been on holiday to the Arctic. That sounds nice. Honestly, it's amazing. <laughs> of course you have. Seriously. <laughs> what did you do? What? Like, looked at glaciers, polar bears. Oh, my God. Just had a look. Honestly, Norway, Denmark. Norway and Denmark sound That's more achievable. Good, honestly. Yeah. But whatever, I mean, Denmark's Norway, roughly on the same latitude as Newcastle, isn't it? Well, I, don't I know. quite like Newcastle. There, I said it. I think go on holiday to Newcastle. Maybe I will. I mean, because you spend part of your summer in Edinburgh, presumably. Scotland. Anyway. Scotland, is a, Scotland yes. is a good Scotland's place. Scotland's ideal for me. That's yeah. the perfect summer rain, weather. Lots yes. of rain. Yeah. Mm. But warm rain. <laughs> so it feels like a holiday. It's great. Uh, Catherine, you brought some ideas along with you. Uh, I what's, did. what's your first one? Okay. I think that anybody who uses the word partner should have to immediately clarify their meaning. Oh, good. Ah, I like um, that. I think it would get me out of a lot of awkward situations. I think it would get my father out of a lot of awkward situations. I think it's like it helps all generations, mm. right? So, like, first of all, are you self-identifying as a cowboy? Maybe you are. Do you play tennis with a person? Perhaps you do. Are you yeah. setting up a small to medium-sized business? I don't know. Perhaps you're cohabiting and have just given up on the prospect of sex. <laughs> but you might also potentially be one of mine. You might be yes. one of the gays, and I don't know. And but they feel like say, it's very tense. Would you say? Should you say sexual partner, or is that too? It's a bit sort of graphic. <laughs> I love that you think that's graphic. <laughs> yeah, like I'm sexing this person would be clearer for yes. me than this is my partner. I encourage people to use the word lover. Yeah, it's creepy, and I'm sure your wife wouldn't appreciate it. Compañero. <laughs> yeah. I think there needs to be a solution to this. Some I think sort of clarification. The so girlfriend, do you think, is a boyfriend is a bit sort of... I prefer girlfriend mm. to partner. Also, especially because I find people often say partner for my girlfriend and I, where they wouldn't say that for a straight couple. Uh. But they're just like, this is Catherine's part, like the three P partner partner and I'm just like just say she's just my girlfriend but surely those people are just trying to get it right in a way that feels good to you and they're just sort of fudging it totally which is why I think we should all be much more open about it so so you think it just needs the adjective this is my business partner this is my police partner partner. this is my life partner this is my sexual partner but life partner is obviously you know, well, they're not like, like a relationship exactly, you exactly, are. You're three exactly, months in and you say this is exactly. my life partner, you probably that's quite helpful, right? Because if the other person thinks you're life partners and you thought you were just sexing, then that's a good clarification. This is the person I'm yeah. sleeping with, not yeah. so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't have to give a rating. <laughs> I'm currently sleeping with this person, I'm gonna say seven out of ten. <laughs> So harsh. Yeah, I'm. In, I'm into this idea. I, you know. More, well, what's more... the word? I'm. I'm sorry to press you on this, but what's the what's the sort of? Well, like of... this is my girlfriend. This is my wife. This is my boyfriend. This is my lover. This is someone I'm seeing. All clearer than this is my partner. The, the Swedes have a good word. Oh, go on. Which go on. is uh, across the different uh, genders. Um, sambo. What does it actually mean in it Swedish? It means you live in partner, the, right. the, the person you're romantically involved with that you live with, but you're not married to. I'm not saying we just take that word. Squeeze. Just say we... <laughs> <laughs> That's so quaint. I would absolutely love that. This is my current squeeze. Yeah. The good thing about squeeze is not going to be confused with business partner. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to assume you're playing tennis yeah, later. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say just my squeeze. No, you know what I mean, thanks. Um, uh, because I mean, otherwise, yeah. I spend the rest of the conversation going, "Are they making a podcast together, can or I, are they lovers?" I don't can understand. I just tell you why you are right, and this concerns Princess Margaret and Cherie Blair. So this is an extract from Cherie Blair's memoirs. One evening, I was at the Royal Opera House for some gala performance, and I was talking to Princess Margaret about what we had seen when Chris Smith came over, the then Minister of Culture, who is gay. Have you met Chris Smith, our culture secretary, ma'am? I asked. She peered at him. And this is his partner, I added. This is Cherie. Partner for what? 
called Princess Margaret. Yes, Princess I, Margaret. I, I took a breath. Sex, mom. <laughs> <laughs> she stalked off. She didn't stalk off. Apparently she did. The, the Amazing. Most, the most, that's the most astonishing part of that story because she was quite wild, Princess Margaret, wasn't she? Yeah, like we've true. seen the crown. We know then she was knocking about with Mick Jagger and so on. So we need answers on a postcard from our listeners about the word. I want synonyms. Like, what is the word? I, honestly, I know you laughed about compañero. I mean, I did. I think people I in my parents, it. honestly, people <laughs> who were like my parents' friends used to say that about their. <laughs> but does that not tell you everything you need to know? People who my were my parents' friends. I know, I know. Yeah. So maybe we need a newer yeah. word. So I just want to clarify. <laughs> right, okay, good. All right, we'll have that. We love we'll, it. We'll, we'll, okay. we'll, we'll get yeah. people involved in we will. that, but the principle Thanks, we're on board with. Thanks. Uh, what else do you have, Catherine? Okay, so I am bothered by public toilets that you have to pay into. Completely right. Thank oh. you. It's an outrage. Um, I Spending concur. a pound to spend a penny. Oh, you, it's an outrage. Right? Very funny. Thank you. Um, I thought that when I was 16. I didn't laugh, I just no, said no. it. <laughs> yeah. That's an indication of how funny it was. I thought yeah. we'd just sort of move past. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, but here's my thinking, right? I think that if women have to continue to pay the 30p to p, mm. then we should also be able to charge on-the-spot fines of the same amount to any man we see peeing on the street or in a public place. Because ultimately, men can do that and women can't, more mm. often than not, more socially acceptable. There is somebody close to me, I don't want to name this person, <laughs> who doesn't feel as constrained by the social norms of women not peeing behind a skip sure. as, as you are. Do you not feel like we should just judge women less for public urination? Okay, see, my plan sort of eliminates public urination. I don't think public yours urination seems is very to actively good. <laughs> encourage Honestly, it. I think men who like go and pee in the. I just think that's pretty bad. Really. Yeah, right? I, I'm not saying I do it. I also quite like the notion of a tax that's just on men and not women. Mm. I, I mean, call me crazy, but I feel like that might balance some stuff out. So, what, what do you think about this? So, you're, you're not a public urinator. People will be pleased to hear. No, definitely not. Um, not me anymore, like, am I, think, I right, guys? I think I think sort of in the countryside behind a bush, you can sort in a of, hedgerow. In a hedgerow is sort of more on the no. acceptability. You think not unacceptable I think, in I think all circumstances. I'm I'm for no. I think even, you should pee in places where there's lural and even in the sinks. like Arctic. Oh my god! And did you pee in the Arctic? I may have done. I may have peed in the. You Arctic. said you were looking at polar bears. Yeah, I didn't pee anywhere near the polar bears. <laughs> I don't uh, know that that makes it better. Okay, women and polar bears who witness you publicly peeing yeah. should be able to charge an on-the-spot fine. But as do you know, here's, here's a thought: as a society, sure. we've decided that it's okay for dogs to urinate wherever they want. To. I'm also against that. So. But how 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 would you what steps would you take to deal with that? It's hard to police. I feel like public toilets for pets would be fine by me. But do you think the pets are able to learn to use them? Well, see, that's the distinction, right? Isn't it? Because you're, I think you're doing your gender a disservice. Unlike dogs, for example, <laughs> I think men, if we expected of them, really could possibly distinguish between public spaces and the loo. <laughs> I don't want to over you know burden them but i think they could do it but my, my point is more that as a society we've decided there's gonna we're gonna be swimming in urine dog urine in, in the first place that's all over the place Where so do you live so why, <laughs> so why, why don't we just add human in, urine into the mix though no okay right so Ed. i think we should move on i think we should abolish the charges i think there there aren't enough public toilets by the way agreed there oh. definitely aren't uh, by the way and all of that thing about you know, shops stopping you using their uh, public toilets, Agreed. blah, 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 etc. is bad. I get very anxious about it. I don't like going in somewhere and asking to use the toilet in case they you say no. You just need to sort of race in. You know, I once went into a pub in the middle of, I think it was near, I was staying near Dover. I was the leader at that point. And I raced into this pub because I was desperate to pee. And they sort of let me use it. And I think it turned out to be like Nigel Farage's favourite pub or something. I mean, he wasn't there at the time. <laughs> and now you've marked your territory. It became a thing. But I think more facilities... I also don't think it's reasonable for places that are chains to have signs like, only for customer's use. I'm like, mm. everyone has at some point been a customer of Nando's, mm. okay? <laughs> Maybe I'm not today, but I am theor- like I'm, I'm a customer. Yes. I also, just the loo today. And also these people are... Because you know they sort of try and get away with like oh we're we're really sort of nice I mean like the the recent Starbucks incident in America where those black people were arrested for like being there I mean mm. you know it's the mm-hmm. sort of it's the extreme example of this but they try and get away with 
we're like a sort of we're not just a restaurant we're a sort of public service we're yeah. a place yeah. to blah 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 but it's like well no unless you buy the coffee you can't use the toilet yeah, yeah. good i feel we've covered a good we lot, have lot of ground there around urination yeah um, <laughs> and, and catherine what else do you have Okay, we slightly touched on this, but I have strong feelings about it. I think that if you have a dog, congratulations, if you've kept it in your house and that's your dog, fine. I'm happy to concede I shouldn't be able to come into your house. However, if you bring your very adorable pooch into a public sphere, I think it's fair game. So I think dogs in the public sphere are public dogs. Forget so, nationalising trains. <laughs> I want to nationalise dogs. So anybody would get to cuddle them and throw a tennis yes. ball for them? yes. I want to have a go of walking around the park. You sit down. Yes. I'll take it from here. I'll bring it back to you, obviously. I think people would quite like that. Right? Yeah. It, I just think... Aren't there, like, websites where you can do this now? Yeah, borrow my dog or something. Yeah. But the thing is, right, I was in a park this weekend having a walk, and people were very selfish with their dogs. Really? Yeah, like, they thought they owned them. I was like, Have you ever had on. pets? No, because... I have OCD and I don't want them in my house because they don't wipe their feet or use Lural, as we have mentioned before. But I do like them and I want to look at them and have a chat with them. Jeff has a sort of share of a dog. I have joint custody of a dog with my ex-girlfriend, which delights my wife. Um, <laughs> or partner or ex-partner or ex-compañero. Yes. Yeah, yeah. ex-squeeze. <laughs> and and I, lo- I love it when make people make uh, a fuss of her uh, when right? I'm out and about. I can take it quite personally when people say, how old is he, when they get the gender wrong. But I don't know why I take that personally. That's very strange. It Gen- is strange. Gender is a construct. Dogs, however, yes. are for everyone. They are for everyone. Um, and and it's it's good for small talk because the, the only thing you ever ask a dog owner is, is what age they are and what breed they are and that. oh are they, yeah. are they I nice? do often say to people in the park when I pass by their dogs and they're nice I say oh nice dog and people really like it mm. I mean I've never had a pet myself do you really say oh nice dog <laughs> <laughs> I would love to witness that <laughs> you've never, never had any kind of pet never had a goldfish nope I just think you shouldn't be able to say things like that's my dog or I'm in a rush or <laughs> it has rabies just like no I want to play with it and you should let me is that reasonable? I, th- I think so. All, all dogs, when they're in the public realm, become public property. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think... I mean, property's a funny word anyway, isn't it, if we want to get into it? <laughs> do we have time to <laughs> get into it? I just we think can. we have it, like the wrong way around with, like, there shouldn't be babies on planes, there should be dogs on planes, you know? <laughs> no babies in cafes, just dogs in cafes. Yeah, I mean, I'm into it. Yeah? I'm into it. Okay. Good, we have consensus. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much. Um, I know you gig a lot around the country, so people look you up. They can come and see you. And presumably you're taking a show to Edinburgh this year. I am. It's called Immaculate, and it's on sale now. And it's about lots of things, namely, though, my OCD and my being bisexual and my dad being a Catholic deacon and how those converge. But it's funnier than that sounds, I like to think. Catherine Bohart, thank you so much. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Oh, and here we are. We're in the outro already. Where is Where does time go, Ed? Where time, does it go? Time flies. Doesn't it? Time flies when you're talking about divorce. <laughs> um, as the saying doesn't go. Um, good show. You had a good birthday. I did, yes. Thank you for, for asking as well as... Um, as well as Beaker. As well as Beaker and Dr Honeydew. I think I mentioned last time my wife took me to the ABBA exhibition, which Reasons is Reasons to be Swedish. Yeah, it was very good. I got in trouble. Um from my wife because at the beginning of the exhibition they played clips of ABBA songs to get you in the mood and asked people okay who can identify this one and I was shouting out so quickly that my wife said I was ruining it for all the other tourists you know it's funny because I it reminds me rather oddly of the fact that occasionally I used to go to France as a kid and I used to suffer mortal embarrassment because we used to go on these incredibly boring tours you know, you'd have those tours of like a French sort of 16th century church or something and my mother would habitually correct the guy and tell, <laughs> tell them that they were wrong or say in a loud voice that's just rubbish that's just not right 
Uh, and I would feel so embarrassed. Or she would ask incredibly obscure, difficult <laughs> questions, which they were un- totally unable to answer. Why do you think she was doing it? Totally unconsciously. I mean, just because, honestly, because not that she she just kind of she just kind of knew a lot about French history and you know 16th all of century that. Church, yeah, and all of that, and so would sort of just say, well, that's just wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, ridiculous. Who wants to know how high it is? <laughs> Let's thank Aisha Vardags. Nigel Shepherd and Chris Sherwood for the discussion of divorce. And the wonderful Catherine Bohart for the ideas. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and policy research from Alex Weisbrice and Lindsay And Todd. a special thank you to Alex Weisbrice because he has been basically, without sort of going into detail, he's really been suffering from a terrible leg problem and he's fought through it. At one point, we were considering having a stairlift installed just to get True. him up into the attic for the podcast this week, but he, he braved. You and I could so, have carried him up. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that would have made things worse. You might have done. Yeah. Um, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. And James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And Emily Power made our artwork. Thanks to all of them. He's been Beaker. He's been Dr. Honeydew. And these have been Reasons to be Muppets. 